Hi, and welcome to the show. Sorry we've been off for a couple of days. Memorial Day, Dad in Town, all those things. We're going to give you two podcast episodes today. This first one is, well, of course, out. Dave Gerke might be the most famous guest that we have on the podcast, but uh, this one is certainly the one most knowledgeable, definitely the most prestigious. Gerke, call me when you're an Obama fellow, because that's what Dr. Navdeep Kang is, um, part of the Brightview Health Network. This will be his third time on. He's the chief clinical officer. He's a psychologist as well. Every time he comes on, uh, our first discussion was about a year or so ago, so we dove right into pandemic stuff and how that affects mental health. Um, we had a conversation about six months ago. It seems like we do this twice a year. So Dr. Kang is going to hop on in just a second. We're going to cover everything from your relationship uh, at work and how you keep it healthy um, in the spirit of Naomi Osaka. Uh, Suicides, where are they, up or down? We were all expecting them to be up quite a bit. Dr. Kang getting another great distinction and honor to speak at something that we have right here a couple of miles from where I'm sitting every year that is globally recognized. And it's always just a fun, even nerdy discussion with Dr. Kang. So let's get going. Eric, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Apologies for the delay. I was having a little bit of technical difficulty getting my uh, AirPods to connect. For no, some no. No, uh, you do I sound okay? You sound great on my end. Sound perfect. Awesome. Do do we have a no more than an hour, right? Yeah, plenty of time for sure. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm rolling, so it's uh it's good to talk to you again. It's like we're uh th- I'd say the third time is the charm, but the first two have been a real pleasure. Good to talk to you again. <laughs> No, likewise, my friend. Yeah, I've been really looking forward to reconnecting. For sure. Do you want to start with the nerdy stuff, or do you want to end end with that as we usually do? I was I was actually uh, thinking <laughs> about starting with the nerdy stuff uh, before before we got into the other things. You we, know, so. we can, we can do that. Where where do you want to start? Oh, I'll let everybody know for those that haven't heard Doctor Kang on before. Um, he is a big nerd, like many of uh, us who who enjoy this podcast and. We can start there. So I'll, I'll ask this question. Um, over the last, I don't know, four to six weeks or so, um, knowing that this was our, our time was on the schedule, did a nerdy thing pop up and go, I can't wait to talk to Eric about this? Yeah, man. I mean, of course, when uh, when the, the Snyder cut of the Justice League <laughs> came out, right, I was thinking about talking to you about it. And actually, just earlier this morning, I noticed how uh, on the Marvel side, they've got 10 different projects coming down the pike between Disney plus and, you know, movie theaters reopening and stuff. So I obviously thought to, to bring that up to you as well. I know, I think you're a little bit more of a DC nerd than I am, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Batman, which is fine with DC because like half of what's published is, is Batman. Um, but I'm, I'm mostly Marvel. I, I like, I wish more some, we need a, a 10,000 word think piece about how Marvel and Disney has constructed all this because it's been great decision-making. That's why we keep getting quality product. And like you said, all the projects in the pipeline and the diversity that they're working on now, as opposed to the cluster mess that's been Warner Brothers in DC and why it basically took like fans revolting and tweeting things to get a, a Snyder cut. What, what, what did you think of the, of the movie? Uh, I thought it was remarkably better than the original. It's still, you know, it still doesn't necessarily match what, to your point, uh, the other group has produced on the Marvel side with so much consistency. But yeah, I definitely thought it was it was much better. I, I actually thought it was just fascinating how 
basically the movie got kind of memed into existence, right? Like, <laughs> yes. to, your, to your point, right? The the collective audience essentially demanded it, and it sounds like folks are going to be doing the same thing about uh, follow ups or just an ongoing series of of getting Zack Snyder back involved in the DC universe. So that part to me is like really interesting. How did we get? to a point where we can meme things into existence like that. Well, that that kind of that can start us down what we like to talk about even though we don't dislike that at all. How much how much if you're if you're sitting in the Warner Brothers or whoever the heck owns the properties now with something getting sold off, how do you decide um, what's just internet noise and what's real? Because at the end of the day, these things have to make money and you don't know if there's just a billion like fake Twitter accounts trying to create something that isn't really there. I mean, there is some, there's there's a lot of business involved, but also a lot of psychology as well. Yeah, that's for sure. It, that, that is a, a good point. Like, especially when you're, you know, um, getting people coming at you from all directions on Twitter saying release or create this movie or whatever. And essentially everyone's anonymous. How do you get a good handle on that? I don't know that folks in in marketing have a good, good sense of that. It's a decentralized, um, you know, uh, community and hard to get a handle on how powerful it really is. But obviously with things like this, uh, you know, there, there is some weight that they carry for sure. Uh, Zack Snyder's movies assault my senses, so they're not my favorite. And I know that's that that's what he's great at. Um, did you did you do the movie in one entire sitting? I had to break it up into two nights. I did. I actually stayed up absurdly late. It's probably the latest I've stayed up, and I can't remember how many years at this point because I was I was uh, determined to get it done in one shot. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was something. My my favorite personally, my favorite part of it was where I I went headfirst into the full Zack Snyder bombast and the the additional scene of that first battle of like the gods and men on, on in like proto Earth. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I, yeah. I I I love that part. But you're right; it was a lot more cohesive, um, knowing that it wasn't hacked to pieces by different people. Have uh, anything else on your nerd radar lately? I think the other one has to be the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I think to your point about the diversity in the casting and just how, you know, head on some of the uh, equity issues that that have been raised over the last several years as a society of, uh, you know, just impressive to see how they continue to produce content that speaks to the day, right, and to the challenges of the day. So I think that's been impressive. And and it makes me curious of of what's to come uh, for some of these other platforms that they're going to continue to be releasing on, you know, or, or content areas that are new, like, you know, new intellectual properties that we haven't seen before, at least that, you know, they've been in comics. And so some of them are aware in that regard, but haven't been seen on the big screen. So that'll be exciting to see how they confront the the challenges that we've seen. I mean, last year, obviously, it's been unprecedented, as you and I've talked about a couple of times. And uh, how does the the uh, monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus, the policy response from a public health standpoint, what's been good, what's been challenging about that, what have we learned from that? Uh, you know, how does our entertainment and our art mirror life and have us reflect on some of this stuff? I'll be interested to see how that stuff comes to life. I mean, for the folks who aren't nerds that are listening to us, uh, I think that's the, the fascinating thing is that the reason these one of the reasons why these things have been so successful is that they actually speak to our daily lives, whether you're a comic book nerd or not. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, and I remember there was something about four or five, maybe even six years ago. Maybe it was like when 
Ant-Man came out. And I think whether it was somebody at Marvel or Disney who said, you know, they're superhero movies, but they're really genre movies in themselves. Like how Ant-Man's a bit of a comedy or a romantic comedy. And as long as it continues to reflect life, regardless of what the overarching genre is, they'll always be successful. A quality product is a quality product. That's right. Have you, uh, have you, when's the last time you went to a movie theater? Oh man, I can't even remember at this point. I mean, it's definitely been over a year. Um, so most of the theaters around us are either closed for a period of time or such limited occupancy. You know, we were thinking about taking the kids to, uh, to the theater here sometime this summer, but it's been, it's been 18 months. I've got to say, I can't even remember what the last movie was, to be honest with you. I was, I was always for going back to the movies. Um, I, I think you know that like when I do my research, I don't read some weird spots on the internet. And I remember as late as, la- or as early as last summer, I'm like, if everybody follows typical movie etiquette and keeps their mouth shut, it's probably one of the safer places that you can be. And that's why I, I went out to go see Tenet last August, which was confusing but enjoyable. Um, I went to go see another movie back in... March or April, and I was excited to see um, The Quiet Place came out over the weekend and made $57 million, so it seems like people have gotten vaccinated and were less hesitant to go back to a dark and closed-off place. Yeah, I noticed that as well, and that's that's exciting to see glimmers of hope that we're starting to get our lives back and things are starting to return back to normal, for sure. When did you have kind of uh, an aha or an eye-opening moment of, like, this? This is it's nice to do this again? Yeah, I think um, just being in the grocery store here in the last week without a mask on has been interesting, right? Like, the, looking around, noticing that, you know, the signage says, if you're vaccinated, mask is optional. A lot of folks aren't wearing masks. And I actually took mine off. And hadn't done that in so long, but uh, it, that simple act felt really liberating. And even when I came into work today, I noticed, uh, you know, in, in the uh, building that, that my office is in, uh, there are folks here from the, uh, from the other occupants of the building. Folks aren't wearing their masks. It's just nice to be able to see people and make that kind of eye contact that doesn't have part of your face covered. Yeah, you don't have to smile with your eyes anymore. You can give them a smile or an all-over facial greeting. That's right. Um, Let let me ask you this, and I don't mean to be any kind of wet blanket whatsoever. so it's I'm not concerned. I'm very much looking forward to the summer, and I'm very happy that people get to back get back to doing things that they love and want. But I guess over the horizon, because this vaccine, while very um, successful, we don't know how long it's going to last, and if there's a booster needed or variants that continue to arise. Do you have any doubts, like three, six, nine months down the road, that we could possibly be back where we were? Yeah, I think that this is a really interesting time. And candidly, I don't think that anyone really knows the answer to these kinds of questions yet. And so, you know, when when we have the CDC and others putting out guidance on how we should behave, I think we all have to take that with with, with a grain of salt on one level and then also just provide some grace to our policymakers and our leaders to say, like, if we were in that seat having to navigate something that's unprecedented, uh, you know, and, and the answers don't come easily. We should we should be patient with how sometimes that guidance seems to change, or it's not always clear why the guidance is what it is. So, yeah, I, I think it's unknown at this point of you know whether we'll have boosters once. Obviously, there is question of will we have boosters forever, right? Will we yeah. have? 
COVID-19 and variant vaccinations simply included with the annual flu shot? Is that possible, uh, given that the technology is different? Um, Or is that a series of injections that you get as part of your flu shot? You get two shots every year. I, I mean, I think a lot of this stuff will be to be determined. The initial projection right now, at least following Memorial Day, is that we we are not anticipating a rise uh, in infections and subsequent hospitalizations and deaths. But even that is to be determined because that's only a couple of days ago. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, I think that uh, in general, the, the fact that we're having increasing uh, vaccination penetration in the overall population, that's a good sign. Uh, and it's moving us towards new questions like this, as opposed to continuously looking at the old questions that we had. So, so there are definitely signs of progress, I would say. Um, looking tor- towards the future, congratulations. Uh, Gene told me that you're really excited to talk about something that's really a worldwide phenomenon right under our noses here in Toledo. I was lucky to find out about it, I guess, four or five, six years ago. And, uh, I just thought it was just your run-of-the-mill human trafficking conference at the University of Toledo. You got a couple of speakers, but no, this is a, a global deal. And congrats on um, on being a speaker at it coming up this fall. Yeah, it's very humbling. I mean, uh, I, yeah, I think for anyone who's listening who's not aware, the University of Toledo uh, has been for uh, uh, over uh, ten years now um, organizing an international human trafficking and social justice conference, right? So, uh, Eric, to your point, they're uniting uh, a broad community from across the world to learn and understand, uh, you know, how prevalent is human trafficking? What are the issues involved in that? Uh, To your point, across the United States, but just right here at home, in Ohio, in Toledo, in Cincinnati, uh, it's important for folks to come together to learn uh, and honor some of the hard work that's being done uh, to address human trafficking and then the, the subsequent after effects. So w- what I'll be speaking about is the trauma associated with uh, uh, human trafficking. And after someone is, uh, is, is let's say, saved from that or, or brought uh, you know, out of that uh, existence, like wh- what are some of the, the after effects or what are some of the issues, specifically substance use disorder, uh, how can that be uh, conceptualized as part of the overall presentation of the person? And, and how can treatment for uh, substance use and mental health be critical towards uh, a path to recovery? Uh, and, and, you know, the, the underlying issue is the is the trauma and the experience of human trafficking. Uh, but the substance use disorder itself or the mental health components that come with that are huge barriers for folks to overcome to reintegrate back into their lives. So that's somebody who has sadly been human trafficked um, in in whatever capacity. But there are other things that come before that. And in in many cases, it's a substance abuse issue, whether someone got hooked on their own or someone hooked them on whatever the substance was to get them involved in that world, correct? Yeah, chicken or the egg scenario. I mean, uh, in that regard, there's obviously a variety of different pathways for someone to get um, you know, to get into that situation where they are, are are being trafficked. So it could be that they have a pre-existing substance use disorder. And then as a, uh, you know, as, as a after effect of that, uh, someone can get, um, you know, brought into to human trafficking and, and, you know, be a victim of that, be captured in that regard. Uh, uh, 
separately, someone could be completely outside of, uh, of that whole world, uh, not be uh, a sex worker, not be uh, someone who has substance use disorder, uh, could be, um, uh, you know, otherwise captured, kidnapped, whatever it might be. And uh, that could happen in childhood, that could happen in young adulthood. Uh, there's a variety of, of pathways, I think. Uh, and then the substance use disorder can uh, can develop later as part of the, the traumatic experience. So it could, it, the whole concept is like woven throughout uh, the potential experience before, during, after. Uh, so incredibly tragic set of circumstances overall. But I think the, the thing that we want to emphasize is that uh, like many other things that we have, uh, we, we talk about related to these kinds of topics, there there is some hope um, and there is uh, uh, effective treatment that's available, uh, not just, again, for the trauma, but for the substance use disorder as well. And that's so much of what Brightview does. Um, Gene mentioned that uh, I should ask you to talk about the Every Visit Counts campaign. Can you tell me about it? Yeah, so Every Visit Counts is a very uh, a compelling uh, outcropping of some research that we have been doing uh, at at Brightview. So essentially, our our effort over the last several years has been to understand how effective are we, right? So quality and addiction treatment in the past, at least, has typically been limited to a few different things, mostly around patient satisfaction, right? So if uh, if you go to one of these like boutique facilities that are on the beach somewhere in Florida or California or whatever, they may ask you if you enjoyed your time at the spa or if you, you know, if you like the horse that you rode on the beach and that kind of thing. And so if you're satisfied with that, then that's that's meant to be a signifier that somehow your treatment was good. But in actuality, those those things uh, don't necessarily inform the quality of the treatment. The substance use disorder that someone is going to treatment for may not really matter. Right. And so for us, the endeavor really has been, hey, if we're trying to impact uh, someone's life from every facet that we can imagine, because we understand that the addiction impacts every facet of their life, then we should measure our outcomes from a multidimensional standpoint, right? We should assess someone's quality of life and whether that changes, and if it does, is that a good change or a bad change? Uh, And how much does that change over time? We should do that in every way that we can think about, right? So depression, anxiety, how are you sleeping at night? Are you working? How many hours are you working? Are you back to school? Uh, If you were engaged with the justice system, are you less engaged? Are you off probation? Do you have your kids back? How much are you getting arrested? How much are you using the hospital uh, for emergency health care, you know, which is, uh, you know, usually indicative of someone not doing well? On the flip side, how much are you using like more standard outpatient services. It's like, are you going to a dentist? Are you going to a primary care doctor to get your routine healthcare needs met? And doing that at a higher rate is typically thought of as a good thing. Uh, so, we, you know, we really want to, to assess um, all of these facets and then obviously the substance use itself, right? So oh. <laughs> how much are, is someone drinking or using other drugs? Uh, and what are, what are their risk factors and protective factors for relapse? And so, We've really done a lot of work over the last several years to understand how our treatment program impacts patients and and how much time and treatment is really required to make some initial gains and then how to maintain those over time. The Every Visit Counts campaign is meant to take that to another level 
Because what we can then do as a secondary set of analyses is figure out what was the roadmap to get there, right? So it's one thing to have hope that treatment works. If you effectively translate the science into practice, then people can get better, that we can stabilize folks with substance use disorder, even if they're really high acuity. That's all great. But I think tactically what folks really want to know is how do I get there then, right? So that's cool that you guys are able to make that impact. But if I'm a new patient, what do I need to do to participate in that? And so as, as a psychologist, I, I usually think of this as like client-directed uh, outcomes or client-directed outcome-informed treatment. In other words, you ask the patient, what do you want to accomplish? And typically, folks want to feel better physically. They want to feel better mentally. They want to be reintegrated with their family and social network and repair broken relationships. And typically, folks want to get back to work and have a sense of identity that is separate from the use disorder. And so when we think about that, uh, it's important for us to give folks a roadmap on how to get there. And what Every Visit Counts does is it, it lets us provide patients with that clarity that, hey, in your first month of treatment, uh, here's the visits that you should engage in to achieve the outcomes that you're looking for. In your second month, same thing, third, fourth, fifth month, really for their whole first year of treatment that can in, uh, inform uh, a, a very straightforward answer to the question we get all the time of like, hey, what's the program here? Well, the program here is informed by very hard data science, and we're not just making it up. And I think that gives patients a sense of confidence that uh, is oftentimes missing in this field. That it's not that just, hey, Dr. Kang said you should do this or, or something like that. Uh, it's that the real world experience of over 10,000 Brightview patients tells us that this is the roadmap to recovery. You mentioned the uh, horse on the beach and uh, I guess I'll use a more common example for uh, for people who aren't rich pop stars who can afford that. I would say if you're playing video games, like, are you feeling better? Probably, because that's probably a fun activity. So it, it would be hard to measure. How about like, and I kept using or kept thinking of the word mundane, going to work, being at work, having a conversation with a friend or something like the measuring the mundane. And if the mundane is more manageable, then maybe that's a better sign that you're making the progress that you want. And to go to tease that out a little bit more, uh, the other word that was coming through uh, from you to me was routine uh, and following the prescribed steps in the same way that if you're trying to make physical changes, you're going to track your progress, whether it's how many sets, how many reps, how many exercises, maybe get on the scale every now and then. And in the same way that you would follow to recover or improve your physical image, you do the same with what's going on in between your ears as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I typically just apply the word structure to that, right? Yeah. So the Every Visit Counts campaign helps us structure the patient's treatment in a very clear way. Um, I saw something a couple of months back, and again, uh, I don't think it's crack stuff, but it, it was it was positive. I I, I saw I came across something that said um, suicides were about stable year over year as we went through the pandemic, and. I guess we all expected the worst for the obvious reasons and the data could obviously change because with so many ways we just don't know with suicide, um, with, with drug abuse or addiction or a variety of other factors. And, and we're not going to find out a lot of results for, for years of what's going on with the pandemic and how far it reached out. Um, I, I do have a bit of a theory though because as we've talked about several times, people were miserable they were isolated. More people than ever before finally decided to be serious about their mental health and maybe just reevaluate re their lives. My theory is if things were stable 
when it comes to, to lethal means, at least, um, in a really perverse way, so many people who were depressed and isolated and alone or bored, at least they knew that there were so many other people out there that were just like them. And I know dealing with my own depression, um, it twists your reality. It makes you think all these negative thoughts are absolutely true and that no one could ever feel like that. And it has really gotten in my head before to some really serious thoughts I've had and ideations. At least now that mom who missed her friends, couldn't socialize, was stuck with their kids. She knew that all of her friends was enduring the same thing and in a really weird way. Maybe that saved some people. Yeah, I think that technology really saved us in a lot of ways too. And I will say that our, our various like regulators and insurance companies moved with uh, a lot of speed when it came to opening up telehealth capabilities and allowing for providers to be there for patients as well. Uh, but the technology really supported a lot of that care delivery. So overall, yeah, I, I agree with your your initial sentiment too. Like there may be some wait and see type of approach to this, but yeah, the fact that U.S. suicides dropped last year that definitely defies the expectations that you and I had when we talked the last couple of times. Uh, I mean, who knows? To your point, that could obviously change. And when we look at uh, when we look at overdose mortality. Uh, you know, the, the data is all over the place. When we look nationally, there are increases, there are pockets where it decreases on the rolling 12 month basis. But then we see that the next month, that same area goes up. So, you know, I think the data is still coming in and that story will, as you said, take years to be able to tell. But I, I think that, you know, let's take that example of, of the, um, uh, you know, of, of the woman with depression who, uh, you know, doesn't have the, the same level of social connection due to the pandemic and social distancing and everything else. That isolating, isolating experience can be tremendously painful. But if technology allows us to stay connected to our so- social network or participate in group therapy, that does foster that sense of I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. Uh, and I'm not the only one who, who's experienced this pain before. Uh, and that does have a, a somewhat of a curative impact on people, that sense of universality and connection uh, to others' lived experience. So technology, the regulators, I think, but still stories is not finished. And so uh, I think we have to remain vigilant. And part of what I'm looking for is that, that that same technology pathway and service pathways remain open, right? I think it would be premature if uh, regulators and insurance companies started to close those things down on us, because that could uh, that could start to paint a very different story that suddenly those those avenues of support are cut off from folks and you know we're not we're not truly on the other side of the pandemic yet despite the glimmers of hope that we're starting to see um anecdotally speaking i've come across that uh substance use specifically alcohol also unsurprisingly up have you seen the same yeah and so when we look uh again the, the data continues to be somewhat uneven with some of this right like you look at alcohol use and alcohol sales, um, and uh, you know you see increase in sales that tr- spiked in a huge way. I think the first time that you and I talked, we had looked at numbers, you know, exceeding like what four hundred percent in alcohol sales increase year over year, which I don't even know is a thing, uh, really. And then we had like a forty percent increase in same store sales. That did appear to taper off after the initial like 60 day spike in the pandemic to some degree and it started to normalize a bit um 
but it still seems higher from just like a sales standpoint than uh, than pre-pandemic. And so I still don't think that people are just buying that and keeping it in their house. I still think that, that people are buying it and, and drinking it, but uh, hard to exactly tell what, what the what the outcropping is quite yet. Yeah, I and when I say anecdotally to describe that, it'd be like, hey, it looks like Jamie's drinking a lot more these days. And and there are some like really valid reasons to describe some of these numbers we've kicked around. Maybe people have figured out, hey, you know what? I'd rather have some friends over and I can get more for my money um, because I get a bottle for whatever and that's two drinks at the bar and places are still opening up and obviously trying to find workers. So there's a lot of variables in play, but I just wanted to take a blanket approach with people seem to be drinking more. And, and if they are, cause I'm going to, I'm going to get, I'm going to bet that there are people listening to this podcast who are thinking, you know what? I, I have drank a, a bit more and, and I don't like it. Not, I don't have a problem, but I don't want it to be a problem. So if there's anybody like that listening or people that are listening that know somebody like that, what's a good way to get that behavior back in line where you'd like it, where you're drinking or we'll leave it at drinking or maybe marijuana. Um, you're using it at, at a comfortable, casual level where it's not leading to a, a, pro- a progressive problem. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that uh, usually the the angle that I take from from this kind of thing is what is the cost of it, right? So even casual drinking can have its after effects whether that's weight gain or poorer sleep. I know a lot of folks think of alcohol as being something that can help you get to sleep or just take some of the edge off or, or de-stress. But actually, when we sit back and reflect, uh, you know, drinking alcohol causes us to have poorer sleep. You wake up more uh, from a, a, a brain standpoint and just because you got to use the bathroom, especially at my age now. I'm going to be 40 <laughs> this year. Um and so you're sleeping more poorly. You're not as well rested. What that typically also does is impacts your emotional stability in incremental ways, right? But like if you're drinking a little bit, you're a little bit less patient. Uh, and, you know, that could be at work or with your kids or whatever else with your spouse or partner. Uh, and so I think, uh, you know, the, the, the cost in all of those kinds of ways, how productive you are at work, how dialed in you are, uh, to, to your responsibilities, whether professionally or personally. Uh, but then also just like the literal cost of it too, to your point, it may be cheaper to, to go and, you know, buy alcohol at the store and drink it at home than it is to go to a restaurant or a bar, but there's still a cost involved in it. And I think when folks take a look at their budget, they may see, uh, the percentage that alcohol takes up of their grocery budget is, uh, probably more than what they uh, used to budget in the past or more than what they would have thought they were spending if they go and look at it. And so the the idea of uh, of generating motivation to change behavior, uh, whether it pertains to alcohol use or really anything else, I think a good way to think about it is, is what are the costs of continuing to engage in the behavior, right? And on the flip side, what are the the gains that you can make or the opportunity from decreasing that behavior, because then you can put it in the frame of, well, I lose those opportunities if I continue to drink at the level that I am. And even if that's a casual or comfortable kind of level, that type of analysis can start to generate some discomfort because it's like, oh man, I don't know if I want to be giving up those good things, like a good quality sleep or, you know, more stability in how I'm parenting my kids or, Hey, I really want to do better at work this year and be more productive. I want to show up on time or early every day and, you know, really be like a, a, a star performer. Uh, and, you know, 
if this is detracting from my sleep or, you know, if I'm carrying around 10 extra pounds than I was before, that could be a problem for me to, to achieve those other goals. Uh, and so it really can start to generate some of that discomfort or what professionals call cognitive dissonance of like, hey, I, everything seems to be fine, but is it really? Right. right? Yeah, there's the, the little, and I, I'm guessing this is how um, the average abuse or abuse would build up. Not somebody who maybe dives into some really heavy things. Um, it's just a little bit more over time. And before you know it, it's, it's maybe a lot more than you wanted it to be. It's, it's, it's gone from a glass of wine per night to maybe several every night. And before, now I get it. It was easy for this to happen because I I think uh, maybe you'll agree. A lot of people seem to have this thought that I I've had. We've had this very bizarre paradox of time over the last year. In some ways, time has flown, and in other ways, time has nearly stood still. So it's been easy for changes to happen without you noticing. Yeah, a lot of folks have definitely had this Groundhog Day experience. But but yeah, the, the pathway that you're talking about, it's so imperceptible, right? Like the, the whole thing is, is, is kind of insidious, where you start with like the one drink, and then it may become two, and then it becomes a whole bottle of wine. And instead of on Friday and Saturday, it becomes Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or, you know, Wednesday or something like that, because it's the middle of the week. Uh, and then, and then before you know it, it's, you know, gradually, then suddenly you're on the other side of it. and It's a daily kind of a thing. So I think that having folks take a pause and, and think about uh, what some of those costs are is one way. The, the other thing to remember is that again, if we're doing this, this at home, this pathway becomes a little bit faster than it would have been without the pandemic. And the reason I say that is that if, if you were primarily a social drinker, you're going out to a restaurant, that kind of thing. Well, those opportunities have been greatly diminished just in general, right? With everything being closed down for part of the last year. Uh, but then separately, I, I think you and I talked about this last time. Just think about the act of going to a restaurant. You have to order a drink. It has to be brought out to you. Someone has poured that with a defined measurement, right? Like four or five ounces uh, in a glass of wine that the restaurant gives you. Um, and then if you want another one, you have to wait for the server to come back and then you have to order again and they have to bring it out. So there's like a natural governor on the quantity that you can consume. Plus the cost again, is so much higher yeah. when you're at home. None of those natural governors exist. Like you can go and top off a glass of wine before you finish the last one. And you, very quickly lose count on how many glasses was that and then b before you know it the bottle is gone kind of thing right this is this is the kind of pathway that people have been describing more frequently in the last year uh that that the the descent is a little bit steeper than it was before um and so the the idea of a casual comfortable uh drinking behavior pattern can become something more uh i think more quickly than people realize yeah and um you, I think you mentioned it. Uh, you mentioned governor when you're out. I know that when I go out to drink, a lot of times I'll offer to drive that way that I know that I will absolutely keep my alcohol intake at a measured level, um, not relying on Lyft or Uber or anything like that. But when you're at home, most people are really, really comfortable. So your ability to measure four or five ounces gets a little screwy. You're right. Yeah, folks typically aren't measuring <laughs> much of anything, right? Like when you're at home. You're not getting out uh, a Pyrex cup to <laughs> to measure that into. Right. I, I asked for a Jack and Coke, not Jack and a, and a dash of Coke. Um, <laughs> uh, what else did I want to run by you? There's, oh, so in the last week, and I'm, I'm glad it, it's, it's gotten to where it was, have you followed this Naomi Osaka stuff? 
Um, I have not, no. Okay, I'll throw this by you. Are you familiar with her at all, the tennis player? Uh, I'm not, no. Okay. She is the number one or number two ranked uh, female player in the world, a likely successor to Serena Williams. Last Thursday at the... On the precipice of the French Open, she says, due to mental health reasons, I'm not talking to the media. And uh, I thought, okay, to me, my perspective was, I get that those can be challenging situations, but this is part of your job. And it was a bit of an internet firestorm. French Open find her. They said they'd work on things. And then a couple days later, I think she actually withdrew for the tournament. And she said, I deal with social anxiety and depression. Um which made me retract my initial sentiment of her maybe trying to make a statement that the media sucks because I know what it's like to have social anxiety. Not that, not, not that so much, but more of the depression. Like when you've got to sit up there after a very emotional experience and take these questions, also when you're still young and trying to understand your emotions, she's 23 years old, I completely support her You know, going away for as long as she needs to because it's going to be hard for her to do what she's great at if she's if she can't get these demons at bay. But I wanted to ask you about, um, as people have taken inventory of their relationship with work over the last year, how do you know when work has become um, bad for you or potentially giving you like a, a serious mental health issue? Um, is it going back to what you mentioned, like, what is this costing me? Because there are a lot of people, not everybody hates their job. Some people really like it, but I always try to warn people, don't let your um, passion become uh, a prison. So what's a healthy relationship with work? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, I don't necessarily have a great answer. I think that uh, a lot of times we talk about this work-life balance question, right? That there should be some kind of uh, magical balance that we find where everything is in harmony, right? That our personal life and that identity, uh, you know, is literally balanced on a scale on the other side with the time and investment that we put into our work. And so I think that can be pretty elusive. <laughs> the, the insight that I've come to is that uh, at least, uh, at least for me, that that is very uh, difficult to achieve. And if you do find it, it's pretty easy to get that scale out of balance one way or the other. And so instead, I've shifted my mindset, and I've heard others talk about this same idea of uh, of shifting your your focus to work life satisfaction. And that goes to exactly what you just said. That hey, what are the opportunity costs or what are the trade-offs of me investing more or less of my time and energy into work, right? And just having that very realistic uh, evaluation for yourself or or with your loved ones, if that makes sense, to say, hey, if, I, if I'm going to be successful at my goals, personally or professionally, I'm going to have to invest this kind of time and energy on this side. And that means, by definition, there's only 168 hours in the week I'll have to put a little less time in the other side. And am I okay with that, right? What are my goals and, and uh, what are the things that I can achieve and what's the opportunity cost on the other side? And is that in line with my values? And so then the scale could technically be imbalanced, right? But if I'm okay with that because that lines up with my values, I think people find more peace from that rather than trying to pursue some kind of perfect harmony that, you know, really, really can be tough to to strike. 
And even once you do, it kind of vaporizes on you before you know it. It's a real challenge. It's not like looking down at a scale or measuring how many drinks you've had. It's a lot more intangible and and gray. I know I had to deal with it with myself for a long time when I was hosting morning shows. I I just, the hours were unmanageable, but I did it because I had a strong sense of duty. And now that I'm not doing the morning shows, I, I lost a, a bigger platform and at some points a bigger paycheck. But it's a lot easier to manage my demons not having to wake up in the 3 or 4 a.m. hour anymore. And unfortunately, like myself, like Naomi Osaka, you don't know this until you get to that point in life that you you wanted to strive for. Yeah, and I think that some of these things can also, uh, it could be what our job is. It could be where we live, right? For some people, living in the city is very exciting and exhilarating. And obviously now as we reopen the world, it may be back to that, but for others, it can be quite overwhelming to live in a uh, in a building, in an apartment building, or in a place where as soon as you walk out, there's street noise and city noise and everything else. Um, and so, you know, in in this case of Naomi Osaka, I think the unique aspect to it, if I understand the situation well enough, is you know part of the factor in that too is is our belief as an audience that we should have access to to the athletes, right? It's, it's a very unique dynamic in sports where uh, people are watching you do your job uh, in great detail, literally video recording it and then watching it in slow motion back after almost every action that you take. Man, I'll tell you, if somebody was doing that with me, uh, that that would be very tough to handle. And even in, even in a role like, like for you, you know when the the uh, microphone is recording, and you know when it's not, and uh, <laughs> you know there's a, a continuum that you kind of sit on. But for athletes, we feel like we have this unlimited access to them, not just when they're actually doing their job, but then afterwards for them to rehash it and tell us all the thoughts in their brain and what went through your mind when this happened and when you know when the next play was going to be this or you know when the ball came this way. Uh, and, and some people relish in that for sure, but others maybe not so much. Uh, yeah. They don't prefer the limelight, but we feel like we have a right to them. And, and I think that uh, for some can feel like an infringement on their personal space for sure. Yeah, that's a decision they all have to make. And, and maybe what she's done um, will shift that a little bit. When she first brought it up, I was the first to go, look, everybody in this relationship can do better. The fans can ask for less. The players if they can and they're comfortable, can be a bit more transparent and journalists can ask better questions. So it's a better experience for, for everybody involved. Cause I think you, you sound like a bit of a sports fan and I think you're as tired as I am of uh, Bill Belichick type press conferences um, where you get cliches and we've got to do better and we didn't play our best. Like that doesn't serve anybody. Um, but I, I'll counter your point of like, we, as viewers feel like we're entitled to some of them, they are getting paid quite well. Um, and that's part of the social bargain that, that they have to decide if they want to keep up with because they are be pay- being paid lots of zeros more than anybody that's ever watching them. So it is some of their responsibility as long as it's kept within the boundaries of professionalism. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's part of the the social contract. And, and then in part, it's actually part of their actual contract yeah. is that they have to get in front of the camera because that is part of the entertainment is not just the actual sports event itself, but then the access to the athletes who are themselves celebrities and, and everything else. So, yeah, I always looked at Bill Belichick uh, press conferences as a compliance play, right? <laughs> like it's in his contract. He's, he's got to get up there and, 
and tolerate it for some defined period of time or take a certain number of questions. So he does that, answers minimally, and gets the heck out of there. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 that's why I wanted to apply uh, her situation to, to everybody else because there are things where some I like to say that happiness is a currency, and while you might have reached. Uh, the salary that you wanted, you have been overwhelmed by the amount of emails and the time on the clock that you weren't anticipating. And then it's up to you to decide whether or not you want to continue down that and maybe have some of your soul erode away at the cost of a nice paycheck or step back a little bit, make a little bit less money, but you have you have healthier restrictions with your work. It's a personal decision for all of us. And unfortunately, like I said, you don't know what you're going to decide until you get there. Yep. Absolutely. What's the toughest part of your job? Um, well, it's it's definitely been uh, an exciting year for us at Brightview, given uh, how much that we have grown. So uh, I think most of your audience is aware that we uh, have a very uh, strong team and a strong center there in Maumee. Uh, but we have also started to expand outside of Ohio over the past year, and we'll continue to expand into other territories. So we're in Kentucky strong presence there. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, uh, looking at Virginia and North Carolina and a number of other States as well. So I think, you know, for me to our conversation, a lot of it has been, uh, you know, the work life satisfaction, um, how much time, uh, does work need is, is definitely more than it ever has been before. And candidly for me, I, I just want to be helpful and effective to our patients and to our teams. And, uh, the, the Brightview system has grown to such a size that sometimes I just I just wonder if I'm being as helpful and effective as I can be. That, that's why something like Every Visit Counts is so, uh, uh, I think, uh, instrumental to us delivering quality care to our patients. And I'm so excited about that campaign because for me, it feels like we're able to put our, our personal stamp on each patient's care. Uh, I feel like I can put my personal stamp on each patient's care by saying, that, uh, you know, we've done the rigor, we've done the background work. Uh, so that's, it's definitely been an exciting time for us, but I think navigating the challenges unique to this past year, not just because of the pandemic, but, but due to our growth, uh, has been something that's been unprecedented. So, you know, for me, I'm learning every day as I go, uh, which is, which is really exciting, but I'll tell you what, it's, uh, <laughs> it's exhausting too. Yeah. I, I would say what's the worst part of the job. And I think you already threw it out there. I mean, the hours can be, can be taxing, but uh, Hey, you are, you are a professional. Um, and I think, you know, when you need, does your wife or anybody close to you have to go, hon, pull it back a little bit when you're, when you're driving yourself too hard. Yeah, my wife is pretty good about that kind of thing. And so uh, that, that's been one of those uh, tougher things for us this past year, not being able to go on vacation the way that we would normally plan to or, or just take the time off that uh, that we would to get away from work. And that's what's been nice already about this year. We've uh, we've already done a couple of trips and, you know, just a, a day trip here or a long weekend there can really do a lot to help you um, not just disconnect, but I, I find that I get to be so much more creative when I just remove myself from the grind, even for 24 to 72 hours. And so, uh, yeah, my wife is really good about that. But you said it before, Eric, I, I have a very strong sense of responsibility or duty that, you know, to, to uh, those whom, you know, much is given, much is required. And, and so I've been very fortunate to have uh, some, some wonderful work and training experiences. Folks have invested a lot in me uh, for me to, to have the knowledge base that I have. And I feel a sense of obligation to disseminate that back into the world as much as possible. But 
but you know, the, the pandemic I think is has impacted us all. We you probably wouldn't be a human if you uh, said that the, the past year has been a walk in the park. And that's why I'm personally so excited for you know for this summer and uh, and how things seem to be going at least so far in terms of reopening. Last thing, um, according to your bio on the Brightview site, uh, you live in Kentucky. That's right. Yeah, I live in northern Kentucky, about half an hour outside of Cincinnati. Were there any incentives for you to get vaccinated? Because uh, we're having our second million-dollar winner announced uh, later on tonight. Yeah, that's one of those things. My uh, So I grew up in, in Ohio, and so my parents still live uh, outside of Cincinnati. And my dad texted me the, uh, the million-dollar lottery when that came out and suggested I go and look and see what, what kind of things Kentucky has. And ours... Uh, is is nothing on that scale. And so <laughs> very interesting to see what some of the states have done. I know like in Maryland, they've had a number of, I think, 40,000. It was twenty or $40,000 winners. 40,000 like, every day. Every day, right? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> with one huge prize at the end of the road or whatever. So no, we didn't have a million dollar uh, lottery prize in, in Kentucky. But, uh, you know, hey, incentivizing people to do things does – does seem to work. It it it's worked. Very creative and and all, <laughs> all all things considered, a very small price to pay to get us where where everybody really wants to be back to, and that's as as healthy and as safe as possible out there. Yeah, it'll probably pay for itself in pretty short order. For sure, for sure. Well, as always, thanks for the time. Um, it's always good to catch up. We'll do this again in I guess another five to six months. And and you just said something um, uh, something about um with duty with responsibility. What what was that line again? <laughs> yeah, well, I think I was, I was quoting something else, but um, uh, yeah, definitely with with great power comes great responsibility. There you go, Uncle Ben is happy. <laughs> Uncle Ben is happy with that one. All right, well, good to chat. Um, I'm so glad Gene can set us up, and uh, you've got my email. So if something nerdy pops up, you can always hit me with that, or I'm I'm always on that email, and it's always a good conversation with you. Thanks for the nerd stuff. Thanks for the mental health stuff. Thanks for um, helping people with any kind of uh, substance issues they might have, and and I'm looking forward to I'm going to find a way to get, and it's virtual this year again, the Human Trafficking Conference that happens just a couple of miles away. Congratulations on that honor. Thank you very much. Yeah, I always look forward to these conversations, so... Uh, very excited to to have this relationship and, and definitely looking forward to talking again. I really appreciate the opportunity to connect today, Eric. And very last thing, since we're inching closer to his uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe debut, you need to lean into heavily when Kang the Conqueror hits the uh, the Ant-Man movie as the main villain. Yeah, is that is it bad that like uh, I, I worry about my kids having a super villain's last name? No, 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 <laughs> no. I mean, they they hired a great actor for that role. That I guess not. It's not official yet, but I mean, that's going to be a cool villain. Like, look, everybody was all about Thanos, and you know, it was fun. It's like art. I'm two years older than you, but we were we were little when like. Everybody was terrified of Darth Vader. Like, he was the villain of the late 70s and 80s. Your kids, yep. I guess, are a little older. It was Thanos. And maybe this next villain will be somebody else that people can get can get behind. That's true. Yeah, the villains always do drive the story. And so uh, so hopefully they, they make the person as hardcore as, uh, as Thanos <laughs> was when Kang the Conqueror shows up. So. <laughs> for sure. Awesome. Thanks for the time. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, man. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Take care.